thank you so much for joining uh, me in the show. Uh, so everyone, welcome to My Bitcoin Stories. And we have special guests here, Brandon Kittim. He is the head of acquisition of Swan Bitcoin, uh, an educator, strategic thinker, a psychonaut, uh, and uh, I don't know how to say it, fungifile or like any someone who very enthusiastic with fung- fungi. <laughs> And also yeah, a durian, say, durian connoisseur. <laughs> yes. I just yeah. introduced, I'm in um, California right now, staying with some Burning Man friends. And they're mm-hmm. all, some of them are into durian, most of them are not. And I ordered some through a business that ships them um, overnight. This this box came from the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And so we had five, one pound of five different durians. And we had a little tasting ceremony <laughs> yesterday. It was so fun. <laughs> Oh my god, durian ceremony. I don't know how how that end well. <laughs> With a lot of oh, burping, yeah. I guess probably. Oh uh, yeah, a little bit of burping. <laughs> bit, yeah. So, uh in this today episode, uh yeah, we want to ask Brandon to share um his views about psych- uh, psychedelic and also Bitcoin because this is two of my favorite topics. Um and Brandon also write one of a great piece called Bitcoin is the mycelium of money and showing the correlation between uh, mycelium and also Bitcoin. But before we jump into psychedelic, maybe you can tell us what is your favorite mushroom so far from all the type of mushroom? <laughs> I think I would have to pick by categories, but for for eating like a culinary mushroom, I think my favorite is maitake, also known as hen of the woods. Mm. And it looks like a, it looks like it should come underwater, like a piece of coral or something like that. And they can be 20 pounds sometimes. And they're just really fun to hunt. You just, they're always at the bottom of an oak tree and you just walk, you see nothing after a hundred trees. And then you turn your corner and they're boom, this big thing, alien looking thing under the tree and great for, for cooking. Mm-hmm. So maitake, that's your favorite mushroom. That's awesome. Right. So um, maybe we can uh, talk about, um, you know, there in, in your piece also, you said that um, there is a correlation between Bitcoin and uh, mycelium. So what do you see uh, this correlation between like psychedelic and Bitcoin? Yeah. Would you like me to do the psychedelic side or specifically just like how the, the fungi themselves are a decentralized organism? Um, Up to you. Like I think because my magic mushroom is also part of psychedelic. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, whatever you think on that side. Okay, cool. Let's do a little bit of both. So um, the the fungi kingdom themselves, if in case someone is listening who's not familiar, it's its own kingdom, just like animals and plants, etc. And there's more fungi than animals and plants combined. So it's a very large kingdom, very diverse. And in the kingdom, the primary physical form that the fungi take is in the mycelial form, which you can think of as like an underground root system. It's a one cell walled system of tunnels and tubes. And what this system does is it sends information around the network 
And it, it actually digests its environment. So it uses chemistry to create custom enzymes to um, bury itself into its environment and then digest it from the inside out in a kind of a crazy way. And so it also forms trade networks underground. So it connects all the plants together and other fungi. And so there's actually an underground economy happening right beneath our feet at all times, almost everywhere in the world. And this, this organism itself, it, it stays in that network form for most of its life. And then the conditions, when they're absolutely perfect, it sends up a mushroom above ground. And that mushroom is actually its reproductive organ. So as soon as that mushroom hits maturity, it releases spores, which are little mushroom seeds. They float nearby, land and colonize essentially new territory. And so whenever you're eating a mushroom, uh, think of like you're eating the apple off the tree, but the real organism's underground. And then comparing that to Bitcoin, um, this mycelial mat, there's no center, there's no uh, central processing unit, there's no brain, there's no leadership. It's actually a totally decentralized intelligence network. And that's very similar to Bitcoin, where it's not a company or a CEO or anything. It's made up of its constituents. So all the different nodes and individuals and businesses and economic actors in the network, they all do whatever they think is right. And that sum total forms consensus, which is the network. And so they're both similar in that way. If you, if you cut the mycelium mat in half, it would just be two. Same with Bitcoin. You could fork off a section or you could have a state level actor shut down all the nodes in Indonesia. That would hurt Indonesians. However, the rest of the network would adapt. Um, and so that's sort of a decentralized intelligence network. It actually shows up all over throughout, throughout nature. And when you think about that from a, like a really broad scale, like why does nature create these networks? And they're billions of years old. They, they're found all over the place. And so to me, Bitcoin represents that same decentralized network archetype. And if nature produces these, that gives me confidence that Bitcoin has a um, structure that will last long term. And I think we could go all day on, on that side. <laughs> and so I'll leave it there and see where you want to go. Yeah, um, I mean... I think that's very interesting like to see the 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 like how there's a similarity for some reason like from the from the technological side of you know if you see it from the technological point of view uh but it's also you can also see this in the nature as well like in, in mycelium network and how how um uh yeah how technology either copying nature or like it's it's just something that is um, intuitively that we will go, you know, to that path, you know, just 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 seeing through the nature side, um, and I think uh, also the reason why, um, yeah, I want to bring you to this, um, you know, show is because I think you mentioned a little bit about um, psychedelics and I also see like a lot of my friends who are very into psychedelics they are also into Bitcoin um, and maybe um, yeah you can also share uh, what what was your uh, psychedelic experience and how how that relate to your Bitcoin experience as well do you have any any similarities in there? Any, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to uh, pull some out. So I first got into cannabis, I discovered cannabis when I was 19, um, psychedelics around 22, essentially right after I graduated college. I'm 32 now, so about a decade ago. And my, my first early experiences were um, 
pretty transformative when I look back on them. And some of the things that really stood out would be um, having more empathy for people around me and also for myself. I think that was a really powerful thing, just sort of, um, you know, allowing myself to make mistakes. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be the definition of masculine at all times. It's okay to show weakness. Um, things like that were really, really helpful. Uh, I grew up in a household with high expectations and a strong father figure. And so there's, you know, no excuses, get it done, you know, be a man, that kind of thing. And I learned a lot from that experience. But if that's the only way you can live, I think it sort of shuts off another side of life. And so I think psychedelics sort of opened that emotional side of me, allowed me to feel emotions easier and feel them all the way through. So I wouldn't hold on to things as much, which I tend to do. It also made me more interested in learning where in school, it was more of like beat the teacher, win the class, get the grade. It was always just a means to an end. And I, I like, I'm curious and I like learning things, but school was never like that. I finished school, introduced psychedelics, and, I, and then all of a sudden, wow, learning's amazing. The world around me is so special. I, you know, I, now I organize my day as much as possible around learning and understanding the world. And so I think those two were probably the, the ones that stood out the most early on. And then tying that to Bitcoin, I mean, there's a long list here. Um, I would say, interestingly, I don't know if I've shared this story at any point, but it was December of 2018. So maybe six months or so after I fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole for real. And I took some LSD with a friend and we had a nice day out in nature. And we got home after like a three, four hour hike. And we just started talking about Bitcoin and the whole ecosystem. And I don't remember a ton of the details, but I remember a lot of the puzzle pieces clicking during that time. Um, a little bit scatterbrained and, and hard to capture all the ideas, but it was sort of like a visualization of the network and how the centralization can fit into society and how humans interact with it. And it's not going to sound very cool describing it, but it, you know, it unlocked a lot of pieces in my head. And interestingly, I've spoken to... I guess since I started writing or speaking about this stuff openly, hundreds of Bitcoiners have come to me and said similar stories um, where they're under the influence of some sort of psychedelic and it influenced their understanding of Bitcoin. And so I think just from a broad angle, there's a lot there. And if we want to just tie like those two ideas together, um, obviously the Silk Road is an early part of Bitcoin's history, a, a dark net market, mostly for buying and selling drugs. And the currency there was Bitcoin. And at the time, people thought it was anonymous. Obviously, that's not true. Um, however, there's a lot of history there. And looking at it today, I would say the world is, or at least the Western world, is starting to be more open-minded about psychedelics again. They're passing uh, for different therapies, for PTSD, end-of-life depression, various other things. And I, I kind of see them from a, a liberty side being really important. Right. You have cognitive liberty with psychedelics, which essentially says that if I'm in my own home, I should be able to do whatever I want with my own mind as long as I'm not hurting anyone. And in, in the same with Bitcoin, which would be like monetary liberty. I, I and anyone else can choose which money or which financial assets they want to hold. And I just fundamentally believe that's not the role for the government. Instead, that's the role for the people. And I think the world would be better off with that. Um, also, there's a lot of similarities for the type of people, both Bitcoiners and psychedelia. Um, they're both very open minded, sometimes even to a fault for the people who spend too much time in that space. 
also um, critical thinkers or first principle thinkers, sort of seekers in general, trying to find truth. And I think the deeper you go with Bitcoin, you start to peel back the layers of what this thing fundamentally is and how will humans relate to it. And just the study of Bitcoin, you sort of handed this unique syllabus that teaches you about economics and, um, you know, game theory and geopolitics and psychology and all these different things. And that alone opens your mind to new ways of thinking. Um, also, there's a little bit of a rebel spirit in both kind of like, I'll figure it out for myself. You don't have, I'm not going to listen to what you say and accept that at face value. And I actually did a poll on my Twitter and then I'll shut up for a second where I asked Bitcoiners, like essentially, what is your perspective on psychedelics? You support them? Are you neutral or do you not support them? And over 500 people responded and 78% of the people said that they support Bitcoin, uh, support psychedelics. Most of my Twitter feed is Bitcoiners, so we can say it's roughly um, a sample size. And I think that if we did that poll to a general audience, it would probably be like 10% maybe if I had to guess. And so obviously way overrepresented, which is not surprising. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, especially the, the part that uh, when you, uh, yeah, when you, try psychedelic like i think there is this section of your mind that is being open um like there is like a new connection that is being made uh, inside of your brain like if you look it into like a brain scan that you know new synapses are connected so uh people can see things differently from what they uh, from from before like from before psychedelic so they are more attuned to or more receptive to for new information of the new way of thinking or see things differently and i think um maybe that's that's why bitcoin and psychedelic uh, has like you know like it, it's kind of matched together because um on, on bitcoin as well like if you talk about mycelium before uh that mycelium network just goes beyond um, yeah, beyond this world, like, you know, it connects everything. So Bitcoin as well, if you learn about Bitcoin, it connects to multiple things inside of a human life and, 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 and multiple subject as well. So yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a really, um, yeah, the disconnection on that side. Um, and yeah, like how, how do you see like, um, you know, these two, like from your own experience, how do you see the uh, psychedelic can improve human life and how Bitcoin can improve human life as well? Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. Um, I, I, I touched on some of them with regards to psychedelics and how they've changed my personal life, like being more empathetic, more open-minded. And some other ones that come to mind uh, is the term biophilia, essentially the love for your, the environment or love for nature. And that's a pretty consistent outcome of uh, any psychedelic use, you know, most people become more interested in their environment. And I, I think that stems from a common experience where you feel uh, one with nature or one with the environment. You essentially leave uh, the perspective of an, a solo individual person's consciousness and instead have a more broad, expansive point of view. And so many people feel like they're more in tune or more connected to the people around them or to the trees or the forest or any type of environment. And I think that has a really positive lasting effect on humans. 
Um, I, when I think about modern life, I, I think about if um, a, a primate who has this giant brain and this, this incredible consciousness, but the consciousness also comes with a curse. And that's that we sort of think of ourselves as outside of biology and, and we, we give too much credit to our ability to think. And so we're really smart, but we're not so wise. And we built this modern life that is sort of obtuse to our biology. And so, you know, most of our biological life we spent outside in hunter-gatherer tribes, living in caves, foraging, hunting, etc. And in that type of environment, um, you're sort of optimized for something very different than what modern life presents. And so sitting all day, being uh, connected to the internet all day, all this information, all these different people, social media, um, different access to foods, we don't work out, we don't get sun, right? There's a lot, we live in square boxes and cities. There's an incredibly long list of things that are sort of fighting our biology. And I think psychedelics sort of strip away the culture and the conditioning and they allow us to see the world around us from a more stripped down, um, sort of like base biological sense. And I think that's a really positive thing, especially tying that back to nature, because I think humans actually do need to respect our bodies more. And for me, that looks like camping, hiking, meditation, um, psychedelics, many different spiritual practices, um, many of which are in Ubud as well. Uh, and so that type of thing, I, I think it, it improves our humanity and from a individual sense, of course, but even from a grand, a grander sense or a population sense, if more people were psychedelically inclined, I think the world would be better in many, many different ways. Um, another one is psychedelics build strong community and they also reduce war because people are more empathetic and the idea of war uh, um, after interacting with those molecules is, is asinine. Um, a lot of people have trauma from various things in their life. Most people do some worse than others, but psychedelics do seem to get to the root cause of that and sort of relieve that suffering. And so, yeah, like most of the modern ailments today, I think would be better served with a culture that promotes psychedelic use. Uh, I don't think it's for everyone. It's not a silver bullet, but I think we should have a world where those tools are available for anyone who wants them. And I think that, um, you know, we're starting to see it, but we have a long way to go there. Um, so that, that's psychedelics. Um, I'll get to Bitcoin here as well. Um, but actually, could I touch on a few things between the correlations before mm -hmm. I move on? Sure, sure. Okay, awesome. Um, let's see. Okay, so practically speaking, uh, the psychedelically inclined often get lumped into like hippies, for example. And there's yeah. a lot of overlap there, but it's not exactly a one-to-one -one match. Um, it also overlaps with people who want to sort of drop out of society and create a commune or Bitcoiners call it a citadel or the essentially looking at culture today and saying, I think our culture is sick and I want to surround myself with people who have similar values. Let's go do that. And looking throughout history, most of those sort of build your own commune, fracture from society, fork from society type things failed. There are some limited examples where they succeed. However, in looking at modern times, if you want to do that, you're going to need some tools to promote and defend yourself. And I think with cryptography and a modern world uh, where you can defend yourself with uh, cryptography from information through your money's being encrypted, et cetera, those tools are actually required in order to successfully uh, break off from culture. And so I, I see them as sort of like foundational things. And 
all the hippies, they need Bitcoin, whether they know it or not. But that is a tool to achieve sovereignty. And, and so I want to reference that. Um, also, Terrence McKenna would be very into Bitcoin today, a famous psychonaut. And he was actually the first one, as far as I'm aware, that compared the computer Internet to mycelium. Um, and, you know, that's an extension of where my ideas with Bitcoin come from. So I have to give credence there. Um, okay, enough on psychedelics for now. What was the other question? How would Bitcoin improve the world? Yeah, like, I mean, like you said before, the psychedelic really, you know, creating this empath and then like, you know, seeing the nature, like be connected with the nature, with your surrounding, more observant. Um, I think like there's also a correlation uh, on that with, with, with Bitcoin, like how also Bitcoin can improve human life that is related to psychedelics. So what, what is your thought about that? Definitely, definitely true. Yeah. And interestingly, like right now, Bitcoin, the price is going up a lot. So there's a lot more attention around the world. And we're seeing people who clearly haven't really done much homework and they're just spouting off their opinions. And that's sort of weird in itself. Like, why are you so confident about something you know so little about. Um, however, I guess my point with that is Bitcoiners are not here simply because this asset is increasing in price, right? A lot of people come for the price going up because humans want to better themselves in life. And that's a natural thing to do. However, we wouldn't stay. We wouldn't be involved. We wouldn't talk to each other constantly. There wouldn't be a hundred Bitcoin podcasts and we wouldn't spend all day on Clubhouse. Like all these things are because there's something deeper here. And a lot of the people on the outside of the community don't observe this. I mean, look at the laser eyes going around right now. And what this takes me to is that there's a really deep thing here with Bitcoin. It has the, the chance to change the world for the better. And that's why most people are passionate about it. And some of the reasons are our, our current version of money is essentially an extension of the state. And the state uses this tool of the mon monetary system for its own advantage and that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for the people. And there's countless examples of this throughout history where the state, um, you know, when things are good, the state's all right. And they're, they're not so bad to the people. But if the state is in trouble, the people pay for the problems and the people are expendable. And so that's when you don't want to have a, a state run money. You want to have something that's outside of the system. And so... Examples of this would be uh, hyperinflation, as, as we are seeing right now in Venezuela, um, happens every generation in Argentina, Cyprus, Greece, Turkey, Zimbabwe, there's many examples. And so in that environment, the people who live in those countries have no way of protecting themselves financially. They're essentially paying for the mistakes of their government. And I don't think that's the right thing to do. And so I, I view Bitcoin as a tool to take the power of the monetary system away from states and give it back to the people. And that is good in so many ways. It's good for pretty much everyone except for the current leadership around the world. And this is the natural state of the world. Um, free markets converged on gold and silver and many other things as money over time. And in that environment, the people are better off. And so it's really only the last 100 or 150 years that we've allowed the state to control the money. And that's no coincidence that, coincidence that it was the century of total war, right? Because if you have the ability to print unlimited money, you can go to war whenever you want and the people pay for it. And so essentially, Bitcoin is a way to take the money away from the state simply 
simply that. And it's very similar to taking religion away from the state. It's just something that the state shouldn't have. And what that leads to is a game that's more fair for everyone because the current system benefits a very small percentage of people and everyone else pays for it. It's kind of an inverse Robin Hood. Um, the system is designed to rob from the poor and give to the rich. And Bitcoin essentially says everyone's equal. So go out there and provide value. And if you provide value, you can store the fruits of your labor in a monetary network that will not only uh, maintain purchasing power, but it also can't be stolen from you, which happens all over the world. And if we have this free, open, global, borderless, neutral monetary system, all of a sudden, the 2 billion people who don't have access to financial services can get an app on their phone, have a savings account, have a, a checking account, maybe invest in other things. And that's going to bring a whole bunch of people into the global economy. And I often use this phrase, like, think about all the untapped human capital that's sitting on the sidelines. Think about the Maya Angelos, the Da Vinci's, the you know, famous inventors, et cetera, that are stuck in a country where they can't actually unleash their gifts on the world. And with a tool like Bitcoin, if, if there are these, you know, next, next level inventors sitting in Zimbabwe right now, maybe they'll be able to bring their ideas to the world because they're connected in the network. And so that, that benefits obviously that individual, but also the whole world, right? Imagine the world without Da Vinci. It's, it's crazy to think about. Imagine the world without Nikola Tesla again, hard to think about. And so Bitcoin brings them online. Um, I mean, we can go all day on that one. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, that's very profound. And I also like like your, your statement about, you know, um, <clears throat> when whenever people are into psychedelic, uh, mostly they are like hippies and then hippies are somehow they are like anti-money. Like they, they thought like money is bad, money is dirty, like, you know, you shouldn't tie money with spirituality but i personally think that money is spiritual right like whenever you are uh you know running out of money you start praying <laughs> you you pray for more money <laughs> etc so um uh yeah like i, I like what you, you what you said as well like you know the the money that we have currently right now uh is bad the, the money system is that not not necessarily the money itself it's just the current system that is probably not very aligned with uh, with a lot of people um and you also talk a little bit about you know how government's involvement as well so as at the current state like the government around the world uh, has like you know war on drugs happening everywhere right like in the u well they are start like um <clears throat> they are start uh not to be so uh strict about it but still like there is a, a war on drugs happening right now But you can see like as well during the war on drugs, the more people actually use drugs everywhere around the world. <laughs> so what do you see? Uh, what is your opinion about government ban on Bitcoin and also government uh, war on drugs at the moment? Definitely. I think this is a really important topic. And what people often think is that the government is against drugs, right? Because there's illegal drugs. However, and I'll, I'll speak mainly from the, the Western perspective where I'm most familiar. Um, the U.S. government is not against drugs. We love drugs. Everyone's addicted to caffeine. Many people are addicted to nicotine. Um, all the doctors prescribe various different pills constantly. The average person's taking five pills or something like that. And so the government's very supportive of those. What they're not supportive of is the drugs that they don't like. 
And so I think that's an important description. And also the idea that the word drugs, um, that's a very broad term, right? And I think it was Paracelsus who said the difference between a drug and a poison is the dose, right? And I think that's just an important nuance of understanding these things like aspirin. If you take 200 milligrams in a little headache medicine, you're okay. But if you take 10 or 20 times that you die, right? And so I think we just need to broaden the conversation around drugs. Um, chocolate is a drug. Sex is a drug. Social media it should, you know, if we're going to use it like this as a drug. Um, and so we should be much more nuanced with the term. I think we should just be more specific. And so yeah, I just have to say that um, with regards to the war on drugs, it's obviously been a massive failure. It's done absolutely nothing to reduce usage. It's cost a lot of money. It's put a lot of the lower socioeconomic classes in jail, uh, mainly non-white people in the U.S. And so there's a really high cost of that program. And in the U.S. right now, more than 50 percent of the people for the first time ever, I think this, this study was made five years ago, more than half the people recommend making marijuana legal, legalizing it. And I think that's just the first step. And so it's starting to change. And I don't know, like the government's still clinching pretty tight on this one, but the reality is it's not enforceable. And so we should just give that up and instead shift to a model more similar to Portugal, which treats drug problems as a public health issue, not a criminal issue right? Addicts are not criminals necessarily. They're, they're sick people and they should be treated as such. They should have support and figure out why and help them get clean, not throw them in jail, which almost guarantees their life is ruined forever. And so we just need to be mature about this and just start over and, and realize that these have a use and, and fix them. Um, with regards to Bitcoin, again, monetary liberty versus cognitive liberty, it's not the role of the state in my, my opinion. Other people would disagree with me on that, but Bitcoin was built from the ground up to be indestructible. And the reason is there was, you know, let's say 10 different versions of, of internet money or attempting to create this essentialized money before Bitcoin, you know, Eagle, Liberty Reserve, B money, et cetera. And they all failed for various reasons, but the main reason was that they were centralized. And so as soon as they got big enough, the government would just knock on the door and say, turn it off. And they would. And so when you think about Bitcoin, you need to realize that the design principles from day one were to build this thing that nobody could turn off. And that's how it's built. And so when you think about that, um, a government has absolutely no chance of enforcing a ban. China's banned it five times. India sometimes bans it, sometimes doesn't. It doesn't do anything. In fact, some countries, when they ban it, uh, adoption goes up because it signifies to the people that, well, if they're going to ban it, we probably need this thing. And so I hope governments realize that it's in their best interest to allow it to happen. And it's a tool for empowerment. And, you know, if you're, yeah, if you're going to fight it, you're just hurting yourself. And so I think we just need to grow up about that one. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Um, interesting. And it's also the same, like, you know, how the government tried to ban uh, drugs and then uh, failed. So we also need to see that the government tried to ban Bitcoin. They will also fail, especially because Bitcoin has more superiority in terms of it's decentralized and it's it's um, it's very hard to track, basically. And um, 
yeah, I like also your your idea that uh, the reason why government uh, banned um, you know certain drugs like uh, LSD or like uh, cannabis, um, it's because it's open people's eyes, it's open people's mind, um, and yeah, like uh, I guess the, the the relation as well with Bitcoin is that once you get into Um, the rabbit hole you can see you you get open your mind as well to see like how how the current monetary system and how yeah uh, how everything is actually affect us as well so what do you see like currently like the future of bitcoin and and also maybe psychedelic you know uh, the after this this pandemic era or like during this pandemic era and moving forward Yeah, so I think we're in a extremely potent period in history for humanity. Um, I actually wrote a long form essay, like 10,000 word type essay on my personal website, brandonquidum.com. And it's called Bitcoin and the Rhythms of History, which is looking at a thesis uh, in a book called The Fourth Turning, which essentially looks at demographic cycles. And the main takeaway there is that every 80 to 90 years or so, society essentially rebuilds the exterior world around us. Think like we outgrow our institutions and we tear them down and make new ones. And historically, this has been done with war. And so the previous fourth turning was 1929 to 1946. So the U.S. stock market collapsed leading into World War II. Previous one before that was the uh, American Revolution. And the, or sorry, the Civil War and prior to that, the American Revolution. And so, and also ancient cultures observe this, they call it the saculum. And so there's this, there appears to be this cycle in humanity and we're right in the middle of another fourth turning. And so I foresee a, continue, a continued amount of chaos like we've seen. I think 2020 sort of kicked it into high gear. We're probably a couple of years away from a climax, probably exit this fourth turning in maybe five, 10 years. And simultaneously, we have this financial system that needs to be replaced. All the, the government, uh, governmental bodies are talking about it, like the World Economic Forum, IMF, et cetera. They're saying things like uh, a new Bretton Woods system or the Great Reset or ominously, uh, you will own nothing and be happy, which is a very creepy thing to say. Uh, and I don't want them playing God and I don't want them trying to, you know, manage the situation for their benefit. And so essentially they've identified the financial system needs to replace. They're trying to come up with a, a, a new solution that suits them. Um, simultaneously, Bitcoin's rising and it serves as another potential financial system to base the, the whole global system on. And so I think we're going to see a dynamic competition between these two systems, sort of MMT on one side and Bitcoin on the other. And one is going to lead to more control, uh, less freedoms for people. And the other one's going to lead to uh, freedom and liberty and prosperity for humanity. And that's Bitcoin. And so um, while this financial system is collapsing and re being replaced, the transition's probably going to be rocky. Um, however, we do have a life raft, which is Bitcoin. You can move some amount of your purchasing power over to this other system. Um, that seems to be rising as the other system falls. Um, and also during these times, governments get greedy. They reach their hands in their citizens' pockets. They clamp down on laws. 
Um, they do all these horrible things. And so Bitcoin is kind of a get out of jail free card in many sense. You can leave your country with your money stored in your head. You know, you can move your money out of the banking system before they um, steal some of it, right? There's all these historical examples. And so Bitcoin is the monetary life raft. I think if um, if things continue, Bitcoin's going to win this fight. Um, it could get rocky, but I'm very optimistic. And so what's on the other side, that starts to be pretty cool to think about, very hard to think about because we're going to go through a lot of change. But I foresee a world with um, more individual liberty and more empowerment on the individual level, which will unlock the creative energy of our species much better than this rigid system that sort of forces us all into uh, working jobs and more and more and more jobs for less and less and less pay. So it will, it will unleash creativity, problem solving. I think, I think we'll see something like a new renaissance. Now, will that start in five years? Will that start in 50 years? I don't know. And so I don't want to put my name on that, but I do see brighter, brighter future ahead. Um, with regards to psychedelics, you know, we touched on this a little bit, but I think that they will become accepted mainstream in most countries. And I think what we're seeing now is um, some of the leader leader countries, I guess, they'll make their um, their policies and most of the world will follow. And so I'm optimistic about what's happening. And, and I think the two things that are going to sort of sneak this through is that one in the US, PTSD is a really big problem. And we send our soldiers to go fight wars that are um, military industrial complex supports. So we're essentially sacrificing our young men for business interests of the state and big business, which I'm quite offended by. But a part of the problem with that is we bring home all these people who have a bunch of problems and we can't solve PTSD. And it's a very expensive problem that makes the military look bad. And in comes MDMA, which has like a 60% efficacy rate uh, of like one to three doses and PTSD is gone forever. And so by any scientific sense, that would be considered a miracle. And so the FDA uh, and uh, both political parties in the U.S. are actually supportive of this. And so I think this is a good step that they're actually going to make MDMA fast track to becoming legalized for therapy very soon. And it will do wonders for PTSD. Simultaneously, psilocybin is in its final stage of clinical trials for end of life therapy. So essentially, people are about to die and they're anxious about that. And so you give them a high dose of psilocybin and they can sort of uh, reconcile with their life, come to terms with death and sort of pass much better. And both of those two are going to be approved. And so uh, I think that's sort of the Trojan horse. It's going to work. It's going to normalize um, the problems and it's going to normalize psychedelics as the solution and more people will be accepting. And, and I think that's really good. I think I envision a future where there's um, the traditional pharmacology-based healthcare system that we have today. And we have a parallel system that's much more based on um, psychedelics, um, food as medicine, fasting, um, sort of the ancient technologies that humanity discovered. And we sort of, con we consider them uh, like frauds now, which is so ironic because that's what medicine was for all of history. And then like a hundred years ago, we invented pharmacology and, and surgery and such. And so I think we're going to see a reemergence re of that. I envision like a nature retreat center with beautiful food and beautiful people and psychedelics and breath work and dance and float tanks and the whole bouquet of healing apparatus we have. Um, and that will be really useful for a lot of people.
I think most people should go there and get well and stay well. And then the very few people that get sick can go to sick care, which is what I think we should be calling our current healthcare system. Um, so yeah, that's my vision. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I also see like, you know, yeah, the future is really bright both sides and, and um, I saw also one of your tweet, you said that when our default mode network is overactivated, we experience anxiety, depression, neuroticism. And when the planet's default mode network in bracket state is overactivated, we see socialism and fascism. And both example of too much centralized processing and psychedelic and Bitcoin fix this. And I, I, I yeah, what you've just described before, it was totally makes sense. Um, um, yeah, I, I think. What a great tweet. I yeah. actually don't even remember saying that. I'm gonna have to look that one up. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think this is one of the, the tweet that I thought like, yeah, okay, I should, I should invite Brandon to talk about psychedelic. This is very true. <laughs> you should give yourself credit. <laughs> Sometimes I just have a, sh- a thought. I spend five minutes. Okay. I have an idea here. Let's, let's condense it and just launch it out there. Mm-hmm. So. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Like you got you got download from the universe, and I think that's also like a lot of people that I met as well said that um, they got also download from the universe. Uh, that you know they talk the universe somehow said that Bitcoin is the way you know for for every problems that we have right now. Yeah. What a what a great talk today. Um, I will uh, definitely put your um, articles, the Bitcoin is the mycelium of money, the rhythm as well, and also the, the fourth turning. Uh, they will be in the description. Um, thank you so much, Brendan, for uh, sharing your thought and your experience. <clears throat> hope you, yeah, hope you enjoy durian more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dia. I, I know that it's durian season right now in Bali because mm-hmm. I'm usually there this time of year. And I'm <laughs> extremely jealous that you can go out there. Uh, my favorite is the durian katan, mm-hmm. uh, the little st- sticky rice or something, little tiny ones. Oh, man, little caramel custard cream. I cannot wait for more of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe I have one last question. Do you think Satoshi Nakamoto used psychedelic or got Bitcoin inspiration from psychedelics? <laughs> the short answer is yes. Um, Satoshi is clearly a very broad thinker, uh, dynamic thinker, right? All the technology that puts Bitcoin together and actually makes it work was already invented over the previous 20 years or so. And how come for at least five years, I think Hashcash was maybe five or 10 years before Bitcoin. So at least five or 10 years, no one came up with the solution. And in retrospect, it's kind of obvious, right? And so why did no one come up with that? that that's been puzzling me for a long time. But the type of person who would come up with that is a broad thinker, a systems thinker, someone who can um, transcend the normal waking consciousness and think from a new angle. And there's a study, I think it was done in the 50s with problem solving, where um, they got a bunch of scientists together who had been stuck on a really hard problem for at least six months. And they gave them a, a medium dose of LSD and they said, go in the room and solve your problem. And what they found is like 30% of the people solved their problem that they couldn't solve for like at least six months. <laughs> and so there's clearly a correlation um, 
obviously I would say that anecdotally, I believe that to be true. I assume the same for you. And most people would also agree. And so I think it's extremely likely that Satoshi was a psychonaut um, because he put something together that no one else could come up with. And, and that's just on brand for psychedelics. And on the other hand, it's not required. Um, many people are broad, diverse thinkers and they've never touched any psychedelics. So it's not required. But the fact that um, I'm inclined to believe this. So I'm going to say he was. And I also like to think that Satoshi was a mycologist, someone who studies fungi because of the similarities with the Bitcoin network. And so if he was a mycologist, I assume that means he also experimented with psilocybin mushrooms because most mycologists are too curious not to. So I think the answer is yes. I, I, I think so too. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's wrap up this um, uh, story. Yeah, my Bitcoin story. Thank you so much, Brandon, for your time and your insight. I hope you have a good day. Thank you so much, Dia. And if anyone in the U.S. is looking to buy Bitcoin, I work at Swan. One quick oh, show. Yeah. Uh, swanbitcoin.com slash quitem. My last name, Q-U-I-T-T-E-M. And if you sign up there, you'll get $10 worth of Bitcoin for free. And we offer uh, very low fees, Bitcoin only, uh, very easy to set up service. We've got many customers happy, growing fast, and we would love to have you stacking sats with Swan. Thank you. Yeah. For everyone in the US, please pay attention on that. And thank you so much for your time, Brandon. Have a nice day. Thank you, Dia. Thank you for listening to the My Bitcoin Story. Stay tuned for more episodes and click that follow button.